Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you that on this day we, your people, may gather together and to worship you. We thank you for the freedom that we enjoy together as your people and to publicly worship you. And we thank you for the opportunity uh, for this time to be able to look at the doctrines of our church that we may better understand how to rightly worship you, how to live unto you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, this is actually the last section of teaching uh, on the Word of God uh, that we're going to have, Lord willing, uh, in our study of the ordinary means of grace. So just as a reminder, uh, and it's printed on your handout, uh, the Westminster Larger Catechism, but also echoed in the Shorter Catechism, uh, asks the question, how is the Word made effectual to salvation uh, actually, that's not the one that I'm meant to have printed out. Uh, well, anyway, uh, you'll trust me on this, since I think I've had it on your handout a number of times, uh, is that uh, God works through the ordinary means of grace, of the Word, the sacraments, of baptism, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. And so, on this study, we've been looking at the Word, and we've looked at it from uh, a hope, a comprehensive or at least partially comprehensive way uh, of looking at the Word of God. And we have concluded our study on the preaching of the Word. Uh, now, where I was going to go uh, in reference to the larger catechism, larger catechism uh, says, asks, how is the Word made effectual to salvation? The answer given is, the Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word an effectual means of enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners, of driving them out of themselves and drawing them unto Christ, of conforming them to His image and of subduing them to His will, of strengthening them against temptations and corruptions, of building them up in grace, and establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. And so the question that we asked last week uh, was, why especially the preaching of the Word? And we're, we're going to continue uh, to look at that today, but just as a really quick recap. Uh, last week, we asked the question, so if it is especially important that the Word be preached in Christ's church, what's preaching? And we looked at, although it, it's not a, a comprehensive answer, it's, it's certainly a good place to give us direction. We looked at Paul's counsel to, to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, in which he tells Timothy to preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And, and so we looked last week at each of those aspects of preaching. Uh, that is uh, preparation and consistency and reproving and rebuking and exhorting, preaching and teaching with patience, so forth and so on. We looked at examples from the Scripture. And then today, what I want us to do in conclusion of our study on the Word is I want us to consider what the larger catechism teaches us as Presbyterians, as Reformed Christians. What does the larger catechism teach us about preaching? What does it teach us about preaching? And I want to start with, and this should be on your handout, in question number 158 of the larger catechism, it asks, by whom is the Word of God to be preached? 
Now, let's pause there for just a second, because not only was this relevant within the time in which it was drafted, that is the 1600s and the English Civil War, but so also drawing from the confessions, the creeds, the catechisms that had preceded the Westminster Assembly, so also they reiterated what we're going to read as the answer here. And so also we see that this is actually a very modern issue. Um, I had someone tell me a story one time, um, excitedly, uh, bragging, so to speak, that that at their church, um, whoever the Spirit moves, that at that moment they may just instantaneously stand up and just deliver the message that God has given them uh, in that moment. And, uh, and, and they, they considered this a wonderful thing, a freeing thing, so forth and so on. Um, you know, for, for, so the good Presbyterian in me uh, would say, well, that sounds like chaos. Um, you know, that, that doesn't sound like doing things in an, an orderly fashion, as Paul directs us. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, not to criticize that person, and I didn't criticize that person to their face, but, but I thought, well... <laughs> well well, well, what what do we believe in in our tradition, and uh, and 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 why? Maybe the why is the better question. Um, the the answer given to the question is: By whom is the word of God to be preached? It answers: The word of God is to be preached only by such as are sufficiently gifted, and also duly approved and called to that office. Now, now think about that answer for just a second, because this question, just to place it in, in the context, the flow of the larger catechism, it's, it's actually referring back to larger catechism question number 156, which refers to publicly preaching to the gospel. So what, what this is not saying, and to, to clear up any confusion there may be, uh, as someone may say, well, the Greek word uh, that's used and translated to English of, of preaching uh, also means to proclaim. We use that interchangeably with sharing the gospel. And of course, we're, we're all called to share the gospel. We're all called, in a sense, to proclaim the truth of the gospel uh, to sinners. But the uh, point of preaching in the context of the church because that's the direction that the larger catechism takes, starting in question number 156, is public preaching. So you, this is very easy for us to, to understand, obviously, because we have a very high view of Scripture. We have a very high view of preaching. So right behind uh, this whiteboard is the pulpit. And the, the pulpit is where the, the, the preacher preaches the Word of God. So we understand this contextually, but again, understanding it within uh, how this was originally came up, but also in the day in which we live, uh, this is referring to specifically public preaching. Now, let's think about what this says. So first of all, preaching the Word is a spiritual gift by those whom God has ordained and called, or called and ordained. That's essentially what this is saying in the first part. Those who are sufficiently gifted. And, and so if you think about this in, in the sense, and, and we're going we're gonna to look at one of the scriptures that was referred to last week uh, in just a second. But if you, if you think about this uh, in terms of just practicality, um, if, if you have ever uh, sat under a, a sermon by someone who is not gifted, 
And, and, and you, you might say, well, that, that sounds so subjective. Uh, you know, aren't we to approach this objectively? Well, certainly we are, but again, let's just be practical. It, all of us have heard a bad sermon before. Um, I, I can think about an, an example, uh, and, and I want to be careful in giving a time range, but let's just say sometime in the last 11 years um, or 10 years, um, there, there was someone who had come. So in our denomination, just to back up, uh, someone who, preach, who is ordained to preach the Word, such as I, uh, you are, uh, go through trials, teaching, uh, or rather uh, exams, and then uh, so forth and so on at the presbytery level. And so it's the presbytery who uh, actually passes, so to speak, the one who is to be ordained to preach within a local congregation. And there was a man who had been trained at a church in this area of the country, and he had come to the part where he was to preach in front of the congregation, in this case the presbytery. And no, no, no joke, it, it, it was like top three worst sermons I've ever heard. I mean, I'm, I mean, it was just like, wow, th- this, is just, this is just not even good, even if I'm trying to be generous. And uh, he didn't pass. I mean, the presbytery actually failed him, which I'm going to tell you, t- typically by the time you make it to the point of climbing into the pulpit, You've been examined to the point where you're probably going to pass. But it was, it was so bad that he failed. He did not get a majority vote. And, uh, and, and, and th- there were some that were upset. You know, well, he's gone through training. He's passed the test and so forth. And the argument that was made was from the larger catechism. He has demonstrated that he is not sufficiently gifted which can just run all over someone who may think that they're gifted. But if a majority of those who are called and appointed to do that very thing, to say that's a good sermon or that's a bad sermon, say no, then that speaks to this issue. So where does this come from? And I'm going to come back to calling in just a second, especially within our denomination. But, but I want to, to point to Ephesians chapter 4. And I don't remember who it was that had referenced this last week, uh, but Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 14, it says, And He, that is God, or actually in the context it's talking about Christ gifting and empowering, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, etc., 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 and the, the, the idea here is, of course, that it is, it is God who gives the gifting. God gifts certain persons in certain ways. And you've heard me talk about this from the pulpit before, even in the context of preaching Ecclesiastes, of how God has uniquely gifted you. You are uniquely gifted differently than others. And so also, and I'm just talking about natural gifts, Um, But so also, uh, spiritual gifts. God has gifted you specifically for the purpose of serving uniquely in His church. And and these sorts of things will be recognized. They'll be identified. And it's one of the things that I've emphasized, for example, in in raising kids, in raising my kids, is we we get into the, the topic of employment and calling and you know we we all want our kids to 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 get a job and pay their own bills eventually 
right? And, um, but one of the things that I've emphasized to my kids is, is that know your strengths. Don't chase money, chase gifting. Because if you go after the money and something you're not gifted in, I want to tell you the other definition of misery and torture. You will be a rich, miserable person. But if you follow your gifting and how God has wired you, then, well, that's a blessing to you. Well, again, if we could just translate that from raising our kids to, into the church, we will see, it will be obvious to us, those whom God has gifted uh, in this area. Now, when God calls a man to preach, He then gifts him with the abilities to carry out his calling. Um, and here's a, a couple of a, a, a nuance here in, in our tradition. So, for example, when I was a, a little boy, you know, you'd have summer camp and you'd go off and do all these sorts of things. And one of the summer camps that I, I went to, uh, they had a course in public speaking. Who takes a course in public speaking at church camp? I mean, at, at, at summer camp. No one. You know, I mean, it, you know, because there was something, I was drawn to it, and I, and I saw it, and I, and I think that my, my, my dad realized at a young age that, you know, okay, he's kind of wired that way, so let's fan the, the flame of this, so forth, and, 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 and so on. But it was not until... I was called, and it was not until I was ordained that the weight and the responsibility of preaching God's Word really became evident to me. And it brought on a new fire, uh, you might say, a new passion uh, for rightly preaching the Word and, and, and teaching His doctrine, so forth and so on. Well, again, that comes from, from God. God is the one who does it. It's not, so, so the person, the one, the, the one who does it, a, a pastor should never be put on a pedestal, should never uh, be exonerated as some sort of, of, of celebrity. We should avoid within our culture, and Americans are just famous at this, but we, we even turn our preachers into celebrities. And, um, and, and that's, not, that's not good, uh, because they are merely humble servants, but specifically gifted for that specific task. Where does education come into play here? And again, you can tell this is my last uh, teaching in this series, right? So I'm jumping around to a bunch of catch areas that we haven't talked about previously. But where does education come into this? Um, for example, uh, what if someone believes that they're, they're called to preach and they've, they've not been educated? Well, in some traditions uh, in uh, American evangelicalism, uh, you, you may not be required to have an education. Um, I was visiting with a guy just the other day, and he said, hey, in, in, in my, my tradition, you can be a preacher in th that certain denomination anywhere in the country, no education whatsoever. Um, in our tradition, uh, education is important. Uh, Presbyterians are, are famous for a bunch of things in addition to being boring. Uh, we're famous for our, our emphasis on education. So for uh, a minister to uh, be ordained within the PCA, you have to have at a minimum a master's degree, typically an MDiv, but not always. And you have to have a working knowledge of Greek and Hebrew just sort of past the, the hurdle, so to speak. And, um, well, the beneficiary of that is the congregation, 
And so we, as a church, are benefited when a minister is able to exposit the Scriptures with not only a background in theology, but also the ability to work through and understand the languages and the nuances that come through that. And so God calls, but so also that calling, is, as far as we understand it to be, includes an education. But the other word that I want to draw to your attention in this answer in the larger catechism is, what is and I want to ask you, what is the significance of being duly approved and called? What's the emphasis? Look at that definition. The words duly approved and called. Now, again, if you think about it in the sense that uh, and I'm, 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 not, uh, I'm not making fun of, of any denominations or any backgrounds, so please understand me. This is recorded. I want to be clear. I'm not mocking anyone with this statement. I'm trying a distinction. So there will be, uh, perhaps, at a, a certain church even today, uh, where a baptism will occur, and that, that baptism may be done in like a, a trough by friends or family or, or a parent or you know father or mother or, or whatever the case is. In, in our tradition, uh, we believe that the baptism is only to be administered by one who is or, ordained. And the same thing goes with the Lord's Supper. Today, we will have the Lord's Supper. You know, we typically do it on the first day of the month. Today's July 30th. Why are we doing the Lord's Supper today instead of next Sunday? I'm on vacation next Sunday. Uh, that's really it, uh, because the Lord's Supper cannot be administered unless there is an ordained minister to administer it. And so uh, that's, that's the standards that we have. Well, the same thing has to do with the preaching of the Word. And the background from this, and again, we could just do like several studies on this, and I'm not going to, but the background of this comes from how we see this principle done within Scripture. So, for example, in Scripture, we see within the Old Covenant church that, that God appoints Moses, and then God appoints uh, Aaron and his sons as priests. We see a specific process. In fact, we actually see an ordination process and an anointing and a, a so forth and so on, even down to the vestments uh, that we wore, that they wore. We see that also in, for example, Christ's baptism. Uh, the commencement of Jesus' ministry begins with a form of ordination in which we see that he is baptized, which he says is to in keeping with righteousness. But we also see God the Father speak from heaven. We see God the Holy Spirit descend like a dove upon God the Son. And that's the commencement. That's the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. We also see this, for example, in the calling of the disciples. Uh, we know that there were a multitude of disciples who followed Jesus. And yet, we know that Jesus only called 12 men, and one of them was a devil. And so we see this in the example that's given over and over again uh, of the calling. But calling then, and carrying through with those examples, calling oftentimes, and I think this is especially the case in our post-19th century, uh, post-second great awakening era in which we live, where calling oftentimes uh, becomes personal and subjective, maybe even private, uh, where uh, someone will say, uh, I am called, and, and, and 
in context that it's as if that justifies it. And so the question that we would ask is, is if I stand up to you and I say, I've been called as a minister of the gospel, your question should be, who approved it? And if I say, well, God approved it. He's the one that called. And you would say, well, who verified it? Who validated it? Who, who acknowledged that it was a verification or, a valid, or validated by someone? And so what we see in our tradition is, is that while one is called from a personal standpoint, it is affirmed. It's one of the things that uh, surprised me. And I, and I would imagine surprised you if you've ever read Calvin's uh, Institutes. In Calvin's Institutes, he has a section in there on calling. And I'm, I'm being facetious when I put it this way, but the section on personal calling is like this long. The section on the affirmation of that calling is several pages. Uh, Calvin's emphasis was is that we're not dependent upon someone's personal opinion. They could be wrong. Uh, that gentleman who at our presbytery preached a, a, a poor sermon may think that he's the next R.C. Sproul. Um, but the presbytery said, no, no, you're not. And so there is this, this authentication. And in our tradition, and we believe that this is the affirmation from Scripture as well, is that there is an individual calling and there is an official confirmation and it is the church who authenticates, and it is the church who approves. So at the presbytery level, uh, then as your pastor, I was approved uh, to be a minister of the gospel, but then, and I don't know how many of you were here, maybe just a, a couple, but then that proceeded to an actual ordination service here in this church, which was the final authentication. It's where the church was saying, yes, we acknowledge that uh, what Presbytery has said is accurate. We're calling him as our pastor. This would also apply to our ruling elders as well. But that does not mean that all of our ruling elders are equally gifted in the same way. So, for example, in uh, a couple of times, uh, you have heard Rick Cohen preach. Um, Rick is not called as a teaching elder, and Rick is not educated as a teaching elder in our denomination. He has been called and gifted uniquely as a ruling elder, and you have approved him. And our church government says that in certain cases, in certain situations, the session of this church can approve Rick to preach on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, and so we, we have done that. And, and we have been blessed from it. And God has, has blessed us. But, but if Rick were to say, well, I want to do that every Sunday. And now I want to administer the Lord's Supper and baptism. Well, he would not be allowed to do that. Um, and so in this process then, whether you agree with it or whether you don't, whether you believe it's biblical or not, I believe that it's biblical, what we do see is that there is a healthy checks and balance. Uh, there is the calling, there is an authentication, there's approval in which the church is involved. Well, that leads us then to the next question, and this is now even more practical, is how is the Word of God to be preached by those that are called thereunto? And I really had thought maybe it would be better for us to do Sunday school after the service today to where we could all evaluate. 
whether or not I do the following. It is actually quite intimidating to read the answer to you uh, as I fail often. But here's the standard in our tradition. They that are called to labor in the ministry of the Word are to preach sound doctrine diligently, in season and out of season, plainly, not in the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, faithfully making known the whole counsel of God, wisely applying themselves to the necessities and capacities of the hearers, zealously with fervent love to God and the souls of His people, sincerely aiming at His glory and their conversion, edification, and salvation. So let's look quickly at uh, how the preacher should preach. But I just want you to know this, as you are critiquing me, the next question that follows asks, what is required of those that hear the word preached? So hang tight. Your time's coming, and we've only got about 10 to 15 minutes. So let's, let's work our way through this as best we can. Uh, so, and I'm not going to list these on the board. I know for the video that Brandon will provide graphics, uh, and I believe that they're on the handout in front of you. So first of all, let's just break these down. And what I've done is I've broken them down into seven different uh, descriptions. The first is, is that the preacher is to preach sound doctrine diligently in season and out of season. What does in season and out of season mean? What is that? That's obviously an idiom. What does that expression mean? Okay, sometimes you don't feel like it, sometimes you don't. What else? Yeah, JJ? Yeah, yeah, more so that. That's right. Regardless of what is happening at any given time, preach the Word. Uh, and so, uh, you are to be diligent in that. Diligence implies a faithfulness, a consistency, consistently going to the Word, um, and so, uh, and then of course, sound doctrine, uh, which I, I think uh, we do a, a pretty good job in our denomination uh, on this, especially given uh, that every minister is required to subscribe to the Westminster Standards, as is uh, every elder and deacon. Uh, but nevertheless, that's the description sound doctrine, diligence, in season and out season, no matter what's happening, the preacher is going to the Word and preaching. Number two, Preach plainly, not in the enticing words of man's wisdom. So what does plain preaching mean? Well, yeah, where people can understand it. That's exactly right. I mean, the, the idea here, and I've, I mentioned this before, is I don't think that it means dumbing down the sermon uh, to the point that every second grader can understand it. Uh, but at the same time, the preacher is to avoid uh, making it so flowery, flowery and, and, and making it uh, in a way that is so, um, what would a, a word be, uh, so, so high-minded uh, that we can't understand what the preacher uh, is saying. Uh, those preachers that you and I admire most, uh, I would imagine, qualify for this. They're, they're plain speaking. doesn't mean that they dumb it down, but they, they articulate the truth of God's Word in a very clear way. Number three, preach plainly in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Um, one of the things, one of the examples that I love 
and I'm, I'm just going to let the cats, cat out of the bag on this and let you know this is one of my favorite things to pray on Sunday morning. It is said that when C.H. Spurgeon would climb the steps going up to the pulpit from which he preached in the tabernacle, it's said that on each step he would repeat to himself, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And there are times when I sit in that chair and I feel so woefully inadequate to preach the Word of God that I would not walk to the pulpit. And I take a drink of water so I don't cry. <laughs> and I say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And, and the point that I try to make to myself, but the thing that we should also remember is that the preaching is not coming from the man, although God uses the man as the instrument. It is to be in the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, it should be evident uh, that the man is out of the way. I've told you this before, you should remember. It's one of the reasons why I preach in the Genevan robe. So that the black gets rid of the guy. You're not paying attention to his tie clip. He's just gone. He's just preaching the Word and you get done and you believe that the Holy Spirit has spoken to you today. Number four, preach faithfully, making known the whole counsel of God. Again, the idea is, is that we're going to look at all of Scripture. And so, since this church was planted, um, we have consistently, except for special occasions, we have preached through books of the Bible. And I know a, a number of you have been here for those. I think the very first book that I preached out of was 1 John, if I remember correctly. But we have worked our way through a good portion of the New Testament canon. We've taken a few jogs into the Old Testament canon, and uh, we're in Ecclesiastes now. Go figure. Uh, but uh, the whole counsel of God is to be preached, even the hard passages. Number five, preach wisely, applying themselves to the necessities and capacities of the hearers. Again, we talked about this last week, so I, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but the general idea is that the local preacher knows his local congregation. And so he's not preaching to a national audience He's preaching specifically to his church. And, and so he'll want to be mindful of that when he's crafting the, the sermon. Um, it doesn't mean that I, I call some of you out by name. Um, wouldn't that be awkward? Uh, most of the time I'd just be calling myself out, John. You know, But no, it just simply means that you understand your church, you understand one another. There, there is a, a sort of familial aspect as, as if we're sitting together over a family meal and we're having a conversation, so forth and so on. Number six, preach zealously with fervent love to God and the souls of His people. Again, what should come through a sermon uh, should be a love for God. We should never get to the point where uh, the, the, the preacher seems to be a, a love of self and, um, and an ignorance of people. Maybe that would be the opposite, right? The love of God should permeate the sermon that is preached and that is heard, and it should be demonstrated in a way where He is specifically 
uh, focused on the needs and necessities of the congregation. And number seven, preach sincerely, aiming at His glory, that's God's glory, and their conversion, edification, and salvation. Of course, the word salvation there is in the sense of our sanctification or the totality of uh, saving grace. And so, to be mindful of that. Um, One other thing that I said before we move to the last question is uh, keep in mind that we emphasized last week the importance of the gospel being preached. Um, And I thought about this after teaching that, and I thought, and I think think everyone in here gets this, but just for clarity for someone who might watch this video later, when, when we say that the gospel should be in every sermon, what we don't mean that it always has to be in the same way, the same format. I mean, for example, I had a preacher tell me, said, in my entire career, I've never, ever preached a sermon that didn't have the gospel. Well, I mean, to be critical, I knew that was not the case. I knew that that he had preached a number of sermons, that the gospel was nowhere to be found. What he meant was he always did an altar call. And because he did an altar call, then the gospel was always presented. Well, in our tradition, obviously, uh, we're not revivalists of the 19th century. We don't do altar calls. uh, But uh, the way in which the gospel is presented within a traditional Presbyterian sermon can come in a a myriad of different ways. But the essence should be there, and the essence is that we're in centers of a need of Savior. Our only hope is Christ, even though that may come in a varying way in different nuances. All right, question number 160. We've got five minutes. What is required of those that hear the word preached? Oh boy. It is required of those that hear the word preached that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Examine what they hear by the Scriptures. Receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the Word of God. Meditate and confer of it. Hide it in their hearts and bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. Is that not a beautiful answer? I find that so refreshing to hear in terms of how we are to receive the preached Word. Uh, We've got, uh, I think, about three or four minutes, so I'm going to move through these rather quickly. Number one, uh, according to the larger catechism, uh, the hearer of the preached word is to listen with diligence. Uh, That means that, that we are, when we are under the preaching of God's word, we are to be active, not passive. We're not sitting in front of, of, of the TV uh, in a, uh, watching a, a sitcom. We are actively engaged in receiving that word. Number two, preparation. The, how many of us think about, don't raise your hands, but how many of us think about receiving God's word preparedly? We are, are praying before hearing the word preached. We're thinking about receiving the Word of God. Number three, listen with prayer. One of the the beautiful things that that Sidney and I have incorporated uh, into our our prayer time is to to pray on Saturdays for Sundays. To to even on Saturday, prepare our hearts for for Sunday worship. And of course, that that is including prayer within the sermon. And I would add, as a, as a preacher, to, to make this very personal, uh, I would be very grateful if you would pray for me when I am preaching the Word of God. 
that I'll be faithful to the Word, that I'll preach the, the truth. Number four, examine what is heard by the Scriptures. Wow! You talk about being an active participant. When you hear the preaching of, of God's Word, if someone, and I hope that I've never done this, but if someone steps into this pulpit and preaches something and immediately, you know, you've heard me call it before, the, the spiritual red light siren goes off, <clears throat> that, is, that is not of Scripture. That's what you do. You go to your Bible. You examine it. Now, it may be something that you didn't know was there. It may be something that's new to you. Maybe something that, that the Lord uses that in going to the Scripture to confirm, but it may be that someone is not preaching in accordance with God's Word. Number five, receive the truth with faith, love, and meekness. All three very important, right? Receive the Word of God with faith. Trust God has provided His Word for me in this moment. Receiving it with love, a love for God, a love for His Word, a love to be taught, and with meekness, implying a humility that I am open, I'm receptive to receiving God's Word. Number six, receive with readiness of mind as the Word of God. And this goes all the way back to the Reformation, but some, some would argue even pre-Reformation is the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. And that's a consistent theme going through all of the Reformation uh, confessions. Number seven, meditate and confer of it. In other words, what that means is, is discuss it. You've heard the Word of God preached, now talk about it. Talk about it with somebody over lunch. Visit with a friend about it. Let's talk through this of what we have heard to discuss the Word of God. And then, and I think beautifully so, to conclude this study, number eight, hide it in your heart to bring forth its fruit. Uh, don't let it just be something that you've merely listened to. You are not a passive spectator. You're actively engaged. You receive it. And what God has delivered to you by the Word of God through the preaching of His Word, meditate upon it. Take it into your heart. Let me pray for us. Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you for this brief time that we can look at your, the importance of your word and the importance of the preached word. And we thank you today that, in fact, we have gathered together to worship you in which the word will be preached. And so we pray that we would be a faithful hearers of the word. I pray that I would be a faithful preacher of the word in all of this, we pray that you would be glorified. We prepare our hearts now for worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.